chapter 18. I won't be here next Wednesday, so I wanted to take the opportunity just to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving. Maybe this seems like an obvious answer or a question that has an obvious answer, but it is, what is thankfulness all about? If you take the biblical view or traditional view, I don't think anyone here would have any issue uh, trying to give us that answer pretty straight out, and we'd probably most of us would agree with that. That's not so in our culture. Um, gratitude or thankfulness has become a very big, and I'm using this word purposely, a very big commodity. There are, I don't know if you've seen them, but there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gratitude apps that you can download. And if you look on Amazon and put the word gratitude in there, you'll find that there are 22,000 books on gratitude. And let me give you some of the titles so that you'll see that Thanksgiving has become psychologized. Okay, listen to what it says. These are some of the titles. Now, all of these that have, and there's 22,000, so obviously there's way more. Gratitude is my superpower. Life-changing power of gratitude. The power of being thankful. Thank you power. The transformative power of gratitude. The magical power of gratitude. Four ways to keep or to put yourself into the power of thankfulness. And then in order to accomplish that power or get that power, there are books called Gratitude Exercises, What is Your Gratitude Quotient, Gratitude, How to Make It Work for You, The Brain Science Behind Gratitude. The, it says the science behind gratitude and how it can change your life. Giving thanks can make you happy. And on and on and on it goes. Um, the traditional view is thankfulness isn't a power, it's a praise. Um, we would say it's a response. You see someone and they do something for you that you couldn't have done on your own, and you respond to it by praise. But that's not how people are beginning to see it. Um, they want to see it as you do thankfulness, have a, thanksgiving, have a thankfulness or gratitude journal, what is your quotient? In other words, how high is your gratitude IQ? You do exercises and you practice, listen to this, you practice gratitude so that you can be better at being thankful so that you can get more out of it. In fact, they said the brain science of it says that the more you're thankful, the better you will sleep. So for me as we get older, I am starting to say thank, I'm thankful a thousand times before I go to bed because that's going to help me. You get great resilience in life. It says that you will have more fulfilling relationships the more thankful for you are. You'll increase your life satisfaction. You'll decrease worry, anxiety, depressions, fear if you'll only be more thankful. And so instead of thankfulness being for someone that deserves your praise and that gave you help, now thankfulness is not about God or others. Thankfulness is about you and the power that you can get from it. So I'm here to tell you tonight, it's countercultural to all the things you might read in this world. Thankfulness is not a power to be gained for yourself. It is a praise to be given to God and others. It's not a technique in which is by far a huge problem in our world. Then instead of solving problems, we find 
techniques that only raise more problems. And that's why you'll hear a lot of sermons that are how-to sermons, how to be happy in four easy steps. And the management kind of things where you can do, if you just follow these steps, use this technique, right? And then you'll find that you'll have better results. But it's not about a better technique. It's about having a different kind of heart. You see, Thanksgiving is really about what kind of person you are. Not whether it's going to make your life enrich, not whether you're going to be better, not because you'll be happier, but because you have a different kind of heart. See, ultimately, read Scripture. It's not about your powerless, powerfulness. Thankfulness really is about your powerlessness. You know why Jesus was so upset that 10 lepers got healed and only one came back? Because he helped them do something they could never do otherwise, and that was be clean. See, they were helpless to change that. And only one came back to say thank you for it. See, that's what's wrong with our world today. See, Colossians 1.12 says that we should give him thanks because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the... He's qualified us. See, if we didn't have him and Jesus and his cross, see, we would be unqualified and we give thanks. Why? You qualified me. I would, I would have been unqualified, disqualified. But see, we give thanks. Why? Because he did something we could never do for ourselves, make ourselves part of the family of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Jane referred to it. Similar verse, sister verse, Ephesians 5.20. It says, in everything give thanks. Or in Ephesians 5.20, all things, you should be grateful to God. Say thanks. Why does he say so encompassing terms? Because he wants you to get this attitude, this kind of heart, is that you really can't do anything without him. In fact, didn't Jesus say those exact words? John 15, 5, without me, you can do what? No, some things. A few things. Nothing. So he wants you to say, hey, I want you to be this kind of person. I want you to have this kind of heart. Because Thanksgiving is not, you don't do Thanksgiving so that you can get something out of it, but that God and others can. And that's why we come to the story in Luke 18 in verses 9 through 13, because we're going to contrast. Jesus tells a story about two men who couldn't be more farther apart from one another, worlds apart to be exact. And one of them, the Pharisee, starts out and he's going to say, I thank you, God. And what he's going to show us is the narcissistic thankfulness that our world today most aptly demonstrates. And then we're going to see the biblical or traditional view of that and how it's counter or opposite or antithetical to that. Now, let me set it up for you. If you read Luke, and I suggest you do, it's my favorite of the Gospels, and you look at Luke, and he has this pattern, I call it a tool, a teaching tool, and here's what he does. He puts side-by-side stories now, in Luke, he has an agenda because he's elevating women. So a lot of the side-by-side stories are between a man and a woman. Case in point, birth of Jesus, Luke chapter 1. Mary gets an angel visit. Zacharias gets an And those stories are told side-by-side. Zacharias, who is the priest, who has a great lineage, right? He's the man looked up to. He doesn't respond well to the angel, and he goes mute, right? Mary, the teenager, way younger, not, a, not in the line, same line, not a priest, obviously, not any of those qualifications. She gets an angelic view. Her, her job is far more difficult, 
but responds far better. The comparison between the two. Then you got Jesus and John. John's born and he is great. He is great, the Bible says, but Jesus is greater because he's son of the highest. So you got Jesus and John side by side being contrasted. You could go through the whole gospel. Simeon and Anna, back-to-back stories. Two people, a man and a woman waiting for the redemption of Israel. Then you got Simeon in Luke 7 and the sinful woman. Simeon has Jesus over. He doesn't kiss him, doesn't welcome him, doesn't wash his feet. You got Simeon. Then you got the woman, the street woman comes in, the sinful woman. She does all the things that Simeon doesn't see. Man and woman side by side in the same story comparatively. You got Mary and Martha in Luke 10. One is serving in the kitchen. One is sitting at Jesus' feet. So you get the contrast and the comparison. And you're supposed to learn lessons from these contrasts. You got the widow who puts her little two coins into the temple treasury and then immediately followed by the rich young ruler who's so rich, but he won't even follow Jesus because he'd have to give up his money altogether. And then you come to our story. You got the Pharisee and the tax collector. Again, another side-by-side story that Luke loves to use that tool. And he wants to teach us something tonight. He wants to take these two people who couldn't be more opposite of one another and he wants you And me, as we hear this story tonight and ask ourselves this question, which one am I really more like? And while you're thinking about that, I want to have you think about this also. I want you to think tonight, based on these two men, where does true, this is how I'm going to say it, true thankfulness, where does it come from? True thankfulness, because I'm going to show you what pseudo, fake, fraudulent, thankfulness comes from. But you're going to see true, in contrast, true thankfulness. So let's look at each one of them one at a time and allow me to read the text first. Luke 18, 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, justified before God, and treated others with contempt. So we already see this principle that there are people who think that they'd be vertically right with God but they're horizontally wrong or not right with people. See, there's a, there's a group of people who think that that's true, that you can say, God, I, I'm this, this, and this with you, but I look down at others. See, there's a split, a dichotomy. You know, there's a fraction or a fissure between their vertical and their horizontal, and they think that God overlooks it. And you're going to see in this case that it, that is hardly the case. So here we got, let me read it for you, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, same word as righteous, rather than the other, meaning the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We are conditioned in America, we have two guys going out to pray. Now we would think, because this is how we pray, that that means that they were going to the temple to have a private time of devotional prayer, just them and God talking to him. That's how we normally would think of it. But the readers of this text in Luke's gospel would have thought completely otherwise. Here's what they know, because when you go to the temple to pray, if you read Acts 3, Luke uses it again, Peter and John are going up to, they're a member, 
and, and they heal the person there in this big controversy when they're on their way to the temple. They don't, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And, and, and so, but they were going up to the temple, the Bible says, to pray. Now here's why. Because there were two times of public prayer, not private devotional prayer, public prayer that were held every day. The first one was at nine o'clock in the morning, and the second one was at three o'clock in the afternoon. The reason those two times were held publicly is that the two times that the whole offering sacrifices were given in the alt- on the altar. So you're supposed to go in and you go to the inner court and you watch the sacrifice or as far as you can go. Now I'm talking about men because women couldn't go in that far if you know anything about the temple setup. But if you were a man, you could go that far. You could be there when they put the animal on the altar, offers the altar for sacrifice, and then after a while, there would be a response from the priest, and then he would give a benediction. And between the sacrifice and the priest's benediction, there would be time where everyone who gathered there was to pray out loud publicly, right? That's what's going on with these two men. They've gone up for this time of prayer, seemingly at the same time. So they go up there to pray, right? And they're, during the burning of the incense, and they're waiting on the benediction, And there are two men that Jesus points out in his story. One is a Pharisee, which, by the way, literally means cut above or separate from. He would be the righteous one. The other guy is the tax collector, and he would be, as he calls himself, the sinner. So you got the sinful one, and you got the righteous one. And let me tell you, socially speaking, they are complete opposites. One is looked on, he's, I would call, the Jewish favorite. The other one is the Jewish foe. I mean, they are not looked upon even close in the same way. Pharisees were known for excelling in their religious observances, their interpretation of the law. We would say today in our modern vernacular that Pharisees were poster boys for piety. I mean, if you wanted to look at someone who really had their act together spiritually, somebody who was really godly, you wanted to have your kids look at an example, hey, so-and-so at synagogue, look at them, Pharisees, because that's what I want you to become. Everybody thought they were great. Right? On the other hand, if you flip the coin over, you'd say, look at the tax collector. Don't ever be like him. He's a compromiser with Rome. He rips people off. Tax collectors were so far down on the social ladder that they couldn't give a testimony in court. Their witness was worthless and that you did not, you could not be punished if you hurt one. So it was bad. Uh, And so they are miles and miles apart. Now, in the passage, look at the text. There are things that are the same. It talks about where the Pharisee is standing and the Pharisee is praying. It also talks about the tax collector and how and where he's standing and how the tax collector prays. Now, I counted them out this week, and here's the difference. There are five words in Luke's story about the Pharisee's stance. And there are 29 words about his prayer. So very little about his standing and a whole lot about what he said in his prayer. The opposite of that is this. The tax collector, about where he's standing, 19 words. Where, what he says in his prayer, six words. The Pharisee's emphasis is not where he's standing, it's what he's saying. Where the tax collector is, it's not what he's saying, it's where he's standing. 
And I'm going to make a little bit more out of that in a little bit, but they are completely opposite. Let me break down what that means. Verse 11 says, if you'll look there with me, God, he said, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed. Now, that is, an, it can be an accurate translation. It's just not the only possible translation of that phrase. In the original Greek, I prefer I, I think that this is a better translation. It means the Pharisee stood and began praying these things to himself. It's not that he's standing by himself, but he's standing praying to himself. In other words, he's praying, but he's praying these things in his own mind to himself. In other words, Luke wants you to get an idea that when this guy is praying, this is what he is really like. Now, this isn't far-fetched, because if you know anything about Jewish culture, that a lot of praying was done publicly and out loud. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and verse 5. He says, and when, when you pray, don't be like the Pharisees and the scribes who like to pray, pray what? Standing in the synagogues. So it wasn't wrong that they stood in the synagogues and it wasn't wrong that when they were there they prayed out loud because that was very common it was the reason why they wanted to so this guy is probably in the inner court because men could go that far priests could go further the high priest the furthest but if you were a man you could go into the inner court and he's probably in there and the bible says that he's a little bit far off from everybody else and probably as close to the altar where the sacrifice and the incense is going up as he can. Because when he prays out loud, here's what he wants everybody to know. He's as close to God as you possibly can be. So he's praying to himself, but that's not the worst part of it. He's praying to himself, listen, about himself. Now, I think this is obvious, but maybe you didn't catch it when I read it. I think that when you're going to do something with Thanksgiving, you're going to show gratitude. You start off, right? You said, I thank you, God, and then what should follow? If you're giving thanks to God, what would you expect him to start talking about? God, right? I'm thanking you, God. Now, here's why I'm going to thank you, God. And he's going to start talking about who God is, what God's done. But when he says, I thank you, God, that's the only time he talks about God in the whole thing. So he's going to have this long prayer but it isn't about God. It's informing God about himself. God, one time, watch. I, the pronoun I, five times. God, what, ready? Here's what he's like. Look at the verse. God, I thank you. Number, I am not like other men. I'm not like other, I want you to know, God, when you got me, you got a great one. I want you to know, God, I'm thankful for me, and I'm letting you know, you should be too. All right, I'm not like other men. Look what he does. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector, the guy that, in my opinion, is probably standing afar off, it says, he's on the very edges of the outer court where the Gentiles are probably passed him on the way in because, of course, he's not praying out there with the heathen. The term is amharets, the kind of people that are out there. Now, he's in the inner court. He's close to God, see, and he wants everybody to know just how close he really is. And so he's praying, 
but he's going to talk about himself. This is what I called, like the, I told you about the books, narcissistic thankfulness. Can I just tell you up front? See, true thankfulness can never come from a heart of self-righteousness. It can't. It can't come from a heart that is all about yourself. The Pharisee is praying, and he's acting as if he's close to God, but in the end of the parable, what you find out is he's really far away. He puts on what I would call a veneer. He puts on an outward show, but there is a vast difference to God about what kind of heart your thankfulness flows from. If it's a self-righteous or a self-centered heart, then God is not interested. But let me show you what that sounds like in case you might think, maybe it's me, maybe it's not. God, I thank you I'm not like other men, praying away from everybody else. He's closer to the altar, and he says, I'm not like them. Now notice what he, what he says. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, all those types of things. Uh, ethically, socially, morally, I'm not those things. Why? Because there is an external approach to thankfulness. There's an external approach to thankfulness. He says all of these sins of the flesh, but what does he not list? No sins of the Spirit. He does not say, God, and I want you to know, I'm way more loving, way more patient, way more, you know what, God, I never lose my temper. He doesn't say any of those because he measures his righteousness externally. And that gives him the ability to look down his nose at the tax collector. See, if you look at your life tonight and you view that your life is a performance and you think that everything you do and God is okay, you know why? The old adage, you know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, and then go for the girls that do, you know, all that stuff like that. Remember that? See, if we think because of all the things I don't do, I'm not like everybody else. See, that's pharisaical thankfulness. God, I'm so thankful that you kept me from doing this and this. And that's a, not a bad thing in and of itself to say. But see, this guy asks nothing of God. You know why? He doesn't say, be merciful to me. He doesn't say, God, please forgive me. I'm so thankful for your grace and your kindness. You know why? He doesn't ask anything from God because he doesn't think he needs anything from God. That's what self-righteous people are all about. See, he's already written his own exam, graded it himself, and given himself an A+. That's how he views himself. He doesn't think, see, watch. Unrighteous thankfulness, worldly, narcissistic thankfulness has a wrong view of God Watch, and then a wrong view of self, and then a wrong view of others. He thinks God is all about externalism, and he thinks that pure separation from all that is sinful that he avoids makes him right in God's eyes. See, he believes in holiness only by subtraction, but not holiness by addition. He thinks that if he's just not unrighteous in the things he does on the outside, that God's impressed, and so God would accept this as a gratitude thing but he's completely wrong about that. And then he goes into what his performance is. I fast twice a week. There's only in Leviticus and in Numbers and Deuteronomy, there's only one time on one day a year that fasting was required. It was on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. It was required for God's people to fast. 
All the other times were optional. But this guy says, see all the rules? I'm not only a guy who doesn't commit adultery. I'm not only not unjust. I'm not an extortioner. I don't rip people off. But I want you to know I go way beyond everybody else. I keep the Ten Commandments and then some. And God says only have to fast once on Yom Kippur. I do it twice. Not twice a year, which would be double. I do it twice a week. Because I want you to know that that's how righteous I am. And in addition, it says, and I give tithes of all that I get. He didn't just give tithes on his money. They, bought, they literally brought their vegetables and they would cut them in tents and they would give that and he gave an extra 10%. And here was the, if you read it in, this, in the sages and their literature, Pharisees were so detailed about their righteousness that if they thought one of the producers of the food that they got from the market wasn't tithing like he should, that they would tithe for him so that that would not make their food unclean. This is what this guy was about. Now, see, we often think of, don't you, when you think of a Pharisee, you think of, wow, what a hypocrite. Most of them weren't hypocrites, you know what I mean? You know, here's why. Because the guy actually did this stuff. Not only did he say, hey, this is what you ought to do, he actually did it. He's thanking God, hey, this is who I am. And he really was that person. He really gave all that stuff. But the problem, and what he didn't realize, is that he was hollow. See, we think that giving thanks on Thanksgiving or giving thanks at some event in our life or when the season comes up makes us thankful. But see, God's not looking for you just to do it on Thanksgiving. He's not looking for you to just do it at some major event. He wants to know what kind of person you are. He wants to know what kind of heart you put because you can't be truly a thankful person without having a right view of God, self, and others. And you only get that, see, when you stop trying to save yourself. See, there are two types of people who try to save themselves. There are those who keep all the rules and there are those who break all the rules. And they both are self-salvation approaches. You know why? Because neither one of them actually depend on God's grace. The Pharisee was a guy who kept all the rules. See, I don't do this, this, and this. Today we'd say, hey, I cut my hair, my skirt's to my knee, and, and we have all that kind of stuff. And we think that because we have those externals only, but we're hollow in this inside. See, that can be a source of self-salvation because I'm constantly proving to God, see, I'm good. I do all that stuff. And then there are people who don't keep any of the rules and they could care less about any of them. See, it's both of them. It's God saying, I don't want you to be a Pharisee or a tax collector, either one. What I want to know about you tonight is do you have a kind of heart where true thankfulness can come from? See, there's an external approach, but there's also an internal approach. Verse 13 reads, But, in contrast, the tax collector, not standing up close, but standing afar off. Now watch, we're not going to hear about, the other guy's prayer was really long. This guy's prayer is really short. Where he stood, the Pharisee, not much. This guy, we're going to hear a lot about where he stands and what he's doing when he's just standing there. There's a reason, watch. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. The number one prayer posture, there were many of them. Jesus fell on his face. Daniel got on his knees. But the number one was standing and lifting up your eyes to heaven. Jesus did that many times in the gospel. That was the number one prayer response or, or posture. It's what everybody would commonly do. 
This guy doesn't even do that. Remember what the Pharisee said? God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. You know what this guy is saying? God, thank you, but I am like other people. But I can't even do what normal is. I can't even bring myself to lift my eyes and look to heaven. Why? Because he has a sense of humility because of his sin and shame. The Pharisee's view of God was it's all about externalism. Tax collector's view of God, it's all about internalism. This guy's about performance. This guy's about pardon. See, this guy's about power. This guy's about praise. There's a huge difference in the two, and that's where true thankfulness comes from. See, he's painfully, and ask yourself this, he's, are you painfully aware of your sins? Let me ask you a personal question, rhetorical, don't answer. When's the last time in any prayer you've had in the last months that more than five minutes of your prayer time was spent on repenting and confessing your sins? Five minutes. You know, that's probably why we're not thankful. You know why this guy was so incredibly thankful that he didn't even say many words and he couldn't even, he couldn't even get his eyes here because unlike the Pharisee, he viewed God as holy and himself as incredibly unholy to the point where he says, I can't even look up to where you are because I know what I am. And instead of looking up, here's what he does. He, it says he beat his breast. Now let me tell you, the only other time that is used in the entire Bible is in the same gospel, Luke 23, 48. It says the crowd that was at the cross when Jesus died, it says they beat their breast and they went to their homes. It is a phrase used in Greek literature in the first century and it was almost, it, almost always used at people who were so overwhelmed by something that made them sad that it's almost primarily, almost always used at funerals. And they, they just couldn't bring themselves to even say words. They are so wrecked emotionally that all they can do is just beat their breast. And, and it said this, and, and very few men would ever do it publicly because it was so humiliating. But here you have a guy who in the presence of God recognizes himself and painfully recognizes how great and holy he is and how sinful how holy God is, how sinful he is in comparison, that he can't even muster very many words. All he has to do, and he's in public, remember, he's in public. He beats his, he is so moved that he forgets about his surroundings. He forgets that other people are there, and he beats his breast, and the only thing he can get out of his mouth is God, they both start with God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Interesting. In the original text, it doesn't say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It has the definite article, God, be merciful me, to me, the sinner. The apostle Paul, when he was Saul, became Paul, called himself chief of sinners. Because Paul, no matter how old he got in the faith, no matter how much God had used his life, he could never get over this thing this guy could never get over. But too many of us have already got over and that is how incredibly sinful we are. 
Not morbidly so, where all we do is get depressed about how awful we are, but to the point where it brings us to our knees and overwhelms us and said, thank you, God, for your mercy. But can I tell you the text when he says, be merciful to me, it's not the normal word, eliason, it's not the normal word for mercy. No, this is the word halastrion. And the halastrion is only used a few times in the New Testament, often translated propitiation, and what it means, it's the same word. Now, if you go into the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant, and you got the two cherubim who have their wings coming out, making a point, and where they bring to a point, there's a little place there called the mercy seat. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the high priest would go in with bells around the outside of the bottom of his cloak. He'd go in there, and he would make atonement by putting blood on the mercy seat so that God would forgive the sins of his people Israel. This, this tax collector is saying, God, I can't get in there. So would you make halastrion for me? So he really is not saying, God, be merciful to me. God, would you make atonement for me? Because I can't do it for myself. See, would you make atonement? I can't. Lord, you know how bad off I am. Would you make atonement for me? Now see, put that in the context of Luke's writing. And this is only a chapter before Jesus comes in on the triumphal entry in chapter 19. And in a very couple chapters later, within literally a few days, he is actually on the cross dying, shedding his blood so that he can be our halastrion. For what the guy really needed was not the high priest to put blood on the ark, but what he needed was the great high priest Jesus to put blood on the cross. See, that's what he needed to have true thankfulness. Can I read a text for you? Could you just listen? Hebrews chapter two and verse 17 uses that very word I've been talking about. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and the servant of God, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make halastrion. See, Jesus has done that. And when you have a heart that has been justified by his righteousness, not your own, when you have recognized how sinful you are and what Jesus has done for you, see, now you can have and be a person who has a thankful heart, even if you are a tax collector. Luke doesn't put anything in his gospel by accident because in chapter 9, the very next chapter, what is the story about? You got a story about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the what? The tax collector. You want to see a righteous, unrighteous man who drops his self-righteousness and knows the halastrion of Jesus and what it does to change him and how it changes his view of Jesus and others and himself. Read the story in Luke 19, 1 through 10 about Zacchaeus, who over a lunch with Jesus is tr totally transformed. He's going to give four times back of his money, let go of all of it, and now he wants to serve and help the poor. He is totally changed. He is truly grateful. And what does it say? Now he sees God differently, himself differently, and others differently, because now he is truly thankful. This Thanksgiving, take some time Take some time and ask yourself the question, what is my view of God? 
my view of others and self. What kind of heart do I have? That Do I have the kind of heart where true thankfulness can really come from? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you. We sing that song, Thank You, Jesus. Thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you for being our Halastrion. Thank you for putting your blood on the mercy seat so that we could be forgiven. And we're so grateful, as Hebrews make so clear, not just once a year, but forever. Forever, God, may the thought of our sins be forgiven, not in part, as the song says, but in whole, forever. Oh God, may it humble us because the text ends, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. God, may we humble ourselves that we might have a grateful heart, a true thankful heart because of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. May it change our thanksgiving this year because of it. And we'll truly give you thanks, for it's in your name we ask it. Amen.